Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to a series of podcasts brought to you by the Yale Sustainable Food Project. Hi, my name is Kendra Dossi. I'm a Yale College undergrad and special farm special projects intern with the Yale Farm. And here with me, I'm honored to have Ms. Tanya Fields from the Black Project. Um, you've spoken about the difficulties in getting funding for your projects. What are tips you have for young people who want to start projects based in the community but don't have the credentials certain grants are expecting? Yeah, that's something I still struggle with. You know, I mean, the whole TEDx Manhattan thing sort of, I think on a personal level, right, because I'm a human being and I'm not perfect and I have feelings. I was just indignant because I felt like, how dare you, you know, (laughs) say that I'm not accomplished enough or imply that I'm not accomplished enough. But I also realized in releasing that open letter, all the attention that came from it, all of the um, finagling I had to do afterwards in terms of how to make it right and how to move forward that I have a lot to learn still in leadership. So the first tip is be humble. Realize that as smart as you are, you don't know everything. And there's somebody who has done it before you and who has had failures and has had lots of things that they can learn from them and that they can teach you. Be humble. Ask questions. Understand that the toes you step on today may be connected to the ass you have to kiss tomorrow. And, you know, um, just make sure that you really come into this space willing to learn and to and to be silent more often than you're speaking because that's how you're going to get the information that you need be an active listener that's the first tip the second tip is to when I came into this work, I was like, I'm going to get me a USDA grant. I'm going to get federal grants. And then I realized like the application's 54 pages long, right? (laughs) And they want to see five years worth of history. And they want you to prove that you can manage a half a million dollars. And you're like, I've never even seen a check with a half a million dollars on it. Um, Realize that sometimes foundations aren't your end all be all, right? During Obama's first campaign, the majority of his money came from people who donated less than $10. There's something to be said about that. So be in the space where you shouldn't be an active listener is when it's time to pitch your project. When you know that you're in a space that you have the ability to be visible, you are actively selling yourself. Being in the nonprofit sector and trying to get funding for a campaign is no different than being in the for-profit sector and pitching, you know, pitching, you know, a new product. Right. You have to get people to believe in you. You, They they need to be sold because there's a million different causes that they can give to. There are a million different organizations that are already doing good work. So, um, you know, that's the place where you really want to step up. That's where you want to have your eyes dotted and your T's crossed. You've really got to know what it is that your uh, that your project is about or your campaign is about. Right. So that probably is tip number three. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So realize that there's power in individual donors and that at the, no matter how successful you get, you always want to have sort of a, a, a cache of, 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 um, of folks that you set, you're sending newsletters to digital and or print that you are interfacing with on Facebook and, 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 and Twitter. And, you know, social media is really up the game in the level of 
in which you can do fundraising, right? You have online platforms that like Indiegogo and, and Kickstarter. Use those platforms. If you need to raise $15,000, there have been many of fi- independent film, art projects, even some stuff that I deem to be sort of trivial and silly, but that someone really wanted to get funded and they were able to do it online from people they did not know. So turn yourself into a celebrity or a superstar on the internet or or wherever you are at that particular space and don't be afraid to ask for the money, you know? And don't be afraid to ask the folks around you for the money because those are the ones that are going to support you. They're going to, you know, a foundation may give you $10,000. They may check in and do a site visit. They'll ask you to report it. But at the end of the day, you know, that's it. And they're very risk averse. So, you know, remember that when you're getting money from foundations, they had to get that money from somewhere. And many times either, you know, uh, family, family money that's set up in a trust for this specific purpose or it's corporations. And if you come out and speak power to truth and say something that's controversial, you may lose that funding. That's, that's part of it. Right. And so if you understand that, and you understand that you've got, you know, a thousand donors for your organization that contribute anywhere between $5 to $2,000, you know, then, you know, as we say in the hood, you good money, you good money, (laughs) you know, (laughs) pun intended, you know, you will, you, you will have a cushion and you will be okay. So understand the power of, of the common person to support you. Um, the other piece is, Nobody's going to support anything that seems convoluted and they don't understand, right? So for me, the first two years, and it's still a continued journey, is about putting things on paper, pitching it to other folks, going back to that first tip of finding folks who know more than you do, who have had more experiences than you have, finding a mentor, right? I think that's invaluable to find a mentor or an advisory board or whatever, and really talk those, do the hard work of talking out these projects. What will they look like? How will they be implemented? You have to know what it is that you want to do. Um, the first year that I was doing this, um, and first year, I mean, but like back in 2007, when I first started thinking about this, um, it was like, I just want to grow food and I want to turn abandoned lots into farms. That was it. People like, what are you doing? That's what I'm doing. Well, how are you going to do that? Um, we're just going to go in and we're going to start growing. Really? <laughs> You're not going to find out who the lot belongs to. You're not going to try to figure out how you can get it to be a green thumb. I didn't want to do all of that. I just had this really, like, idea, this really good idea that I was passionate about. And that, you know, that's what, that, that was it. Uh, and I realized, which leads me to tip, tip four, is to learn how to be able to redirect. If something is not working, understand that it doesn't mean that it's, I mean, you don't want to bounce from place to place. You want to put real some real invest some real time into it you're taking a very calculated risk calculated being the 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 the, um operative word um and you but when you realize that something may not be working find out why and then if you need to be able to learn to redirect that energy right and find something that still is in your mission um that's that is something you still want to get accomplished but maybe there's a different way of doing it maybe there are new partnerships you have to explore I mean, I think finally, you know, if you're a new organization, some people want to do a campaign. They don't want to become a nonprofit. You know, they want to do one particular campaign. They want to get it funded. This is where knowing who the folks in your community are is invaluable. I call it community asset mapping, right? Maybe you want to go to a larger existing organization who does something similar. So maybe I'm just a person who just wants to get a community garden going. I don't want to become a nonprofit. I don't want to 
spend my whole life making other community gardens. There's just one lot in my community next to a school that I want to turn into a school community garden. Well, I'm probably first going to try to go to the school and create a partnership with them. Maybe I'm going to find Green Thumb, a New York restoration project, or Just Food, or New York City Coalition for Gardens, or whoever in the New York City area does this type of work. And then see if they want to attach themselves to this project and leverage their existing funding as well as using their established um, institutional organization to help me get funding for that. And then thinking about what the capacity is going to be once I pull away from the project, right? If it's not something that I am committing to directly managing. And so there are lots of ways to get projects funded. It's It can be difficult. It can be trying, but you can get it done. And so it took me sort of three years to realize that. Um, so everybody's learning curve is different. But I would say if you don't, someone is to start throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars at you like immediately, don't give up. It doesn't mean that it, it's not, that it's not. Um, feasible. It just means that you're like every other person in the world who needs to get access to money that they don't necessarily have in their bank account. And it's just part of the journey. And you're going to learn, you you learn a lot of fantastic things along the way. So you've also said you joined the environmental movement out of necessity. Could you speak a little more about what internal and external factors drove you to the movement and what organizations helped you get started? So I moved into the community. I was a baby. I was 22 years old. I got gentrified out of um, Harlem back in 2002. And I've got this three-month-old kid. I'm working full-time at some awful um, for-profit company in Newark, New Jersey. I'm traveling from the Bronx there. I've got a three-month-old kid, and I'm in school full-time. And... um, I was just like, this okay, I'm going to move into the Bronx, and it's the first year, two years are going to be a stepping stone, and then I'll graduate school, I'll get this uh, some amazing um, like managerial position somewhere, and um, we'll, move, we'll move out of this community. I'll be able to like afford to move back into like gentrified Harlem. That didn't happen. Three months after moving into my apartment, I lost my job. Um, couldn't get I couldn't find another one in time. I started having housing issues backing up in my rent. Found myself in housing court. I'm 22 years old. My parents moved out of the city and weren't as accessible as before. Moving back home was not an option. And I was in this place, this community and didn't really feel supported and was afraid, you know, in a relationship that was going south. And I found myself on welfare, slinging coffee at Starbucks, going to school full-time, and dropping my child off at the babysitter for 10 to 12 hours of the day, and then pregnant again. And it was through that journey that I started to realize that the only thing that sustained me, the only reason I was able to get through those things, because I had a couple things that my neighbors didn't have. I had an educational capital. I had social capital. I had a certain level of cultural capital. And I had a really great family support system. I didn't come from a cycle of poverty. You know, my dad was a single parent, but he had worked the same blue collar job, you know, for, you know, the last, you know, 20 some odd years at the time, you know, um, he, you know, he and my stepmother were really sustaining. My biological mother didn't live in the state, but you know, she did what she could to support me and be there for me. And I had a extended family, you know, my grandmother, all these folks who were rallying around me that if I needed, you know, childcare or something, there was someone to help me that we weren't necessarily going to go hungry, you know? 
And I realized that that was something that a lot of my neighbors did not have and that many of them were coming from cycles of poverty. And so this idea of this struggle had been normalized and there weren't many organizations in their community that they trusted to help them realize a different narrative for themselves. Um, when I had my second child, she pretty soon after being born started to get sick very quickly. Lots of um, doctor's visits, on the nebulizer, um, you know, ended up in the hospital for about, you know, I don't know, somewhere between seven to 10 days, including in the, in the PICU pediatric intensive care because she had pneumonia. Her lungs had filled up with, with, with fluid. Um, she couldn't breathe. Um, and then that journey just kept going eight years. She's eight now. And she, we, we, she's, she's chronic asthma. Um, and what, and feeling like, where's this coming from? Nobody in my family has this. This is not, you know, this is not hereditary. I simultaneously started to gain quite a bit of weight, and I couldn't understand that either because I was had a child tied to my back. I had a child in a stroller. I was out of my house 12 to 14 hours a day, climbing the subway steps. You know, you, I, even in the wintertime, I was sweating because I was always moving. So I couldn't understand how it was going from like a size 14 to a 16 to an 18. It wasn't making sense to me. And I happened to have gone to, you know, so this narrative continued for a number of years. Um, and when I went to enroll my eldest daughter into um, to elementary school, I decided to take a different way home because I made the realization I didn't know my community. And I happened to come across this organization called Mothers on the Move. And in Spanish, you know, on the storefront, there's this big sign. It says Madres de Movimiento. And that's the first thing I saw. And I said, well... I'm a mother. I'm on the move. I'm in movement. This this clearly is the place that is talking to me. And I stood there outside of this storefront probably for about five minutes before the executive director, Wanda Solomon, came out and, um, you know, said, why are you standing here? Why don't you come inside? And that be was the beginning of my journey. Um, Wanda validated for me that you're not crazy. You aren't crazy. You know, there are 32 open air waste transfer stations in your community. You know, we have a sewage treatment plant and a, or, you know, a um, tr sewage treatment facility that book and a park, right? Can you imagine taking your kids to a park and it smells like sewage right on the waterfront? You can see North Brother and South Brother Island. Really? You can also see Rikers Island. Um, but still a very beautiful view, and there's a sewage treatment plant at one end, and there's a, a New York organic fertilizer company. There's nothing organic about it at the other end. And um, I knew I wanted to do something. Um, Wanda said to me, now that you know all these things, what are you going to do? And it was the first time anyone had asked me, and it was empowering. She wasn't being condescending. She wasn't mocking me. She wasn't making fun of me. She was asking me, if you are intelligent enough to know these things happen, then... What are you going to do about them? And so that was it. I was in it. You know, I started learning how to write press releases. I started learning to become a public speaker. I started learning how to run a campaign and how to organize my community. From there, I happened to have met environmentalist Majora Carter. And, um, and, uh, I told her my life story. I asked her if she knew anyone that would hire me because I didn't want to work in the for-profit sector anymore. And coincidentally enough, 
I got hired at Sustainable South Bronx. So I worked there for a year. And then when Majora transitioned out, I followed her to her for-profit company, the Majora Carter Group, and I started working there for a, for a little under two years. Um, and eventually, when I went out on maternity leave, at that time I was pregnant with my fourth child, my last child, um, that's when I really started on this journey of, you know, doing the Black Project, being... Um, sort of independent and on this journey to creating a new institution that will contribute to the larger fabric of amazing organizations in the Bronx that are doing amazing work to recreate the narratives for ourselves and for our children. What are some other difficulties you've encountered in your career path? They are over there telling us like two minutes. We I don't know how I sum that up. No, we can we can keep on going. It's good. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's good. Uh, so I mean that's so that's so. Oh God, I I try not to. There are many difficulties, but there's a lot in this this work that sustains me. So I want to say that first. I mean, there's so many different ways that we can do this work, and so many. You know, I get I get beat up on, and I get beat down quite often doing this work, from funding to organizing. You know to just uh, my own personal growth and development, professional growth and development. Um, so there's so many challenges in that, but there are always these little stories and things that happen that renew my faith in doing this work and that keep it immensely gratifying for me. But in terms of your question, so funding is always a challenge and a difficulty. Excuse me. I'm not the Salvation Army. Um, I'm not Goodwill. I'm not sort of these national organizations that have become institutions. Um, it's it's not easy. I don't have a grant writer. I've, in the last three years, had a crash course in learning how to write my own grants. Um, so that that has been, um, you know, a, a difficulty capacity, having the capacity to do this work, having an amazing um you know, having having an amazing idea and not having necessarily all of the people to help you bring that to fruition. Um, building visibility, getting people to know who you are and what your value is and your contribution and why your contribution is valid. And then just getting other people in your community to understand that. Right. So when I say that, I don't mean like a funder. I mean like my community members who are going to help me do the work, getting them to understand that I'm not just a crazy hippie vegetable lady who lives in one B, but who really understands where they're coming from, and how we can do this work together. So the ability to be able to inspire others to to action is always a challenge. And I don't care who you talk to in the movement, they're going to tell you that outreach and, and movement building is probably one of their biggest challenges. Um, I think, f- particularly for me in the South Bronx, I want to be very real, and some of my colleagues may take me to task later, but our inability to put away ego and to work with one another um, and so many other things manifest from that. You know, it's a manifestation of, you know, xenophobia and, and ageism and, and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Oh, you're too old to do this work? Well, you're too young to do this work. And this is a, you know, this is a primary Latino community and you're black. And, you know, so those things and our histories, our trauma, our feeling traumatized by one another, feeling trauma from the things that we've gone through that we've had no control over and how it manifests into the spaces that we come into and our ability to see one another and their contributions and to say, maybe I don't always agree with this person's politic or whatever, but I come from a place of love and I'm open enough to know that the larger goal is to create a community for our children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren that we're all going to be proud of. That when I tell people that I live in the Bronx, they don't look afraid for me, right? 
Um, and so that's always an ongoing uh, an ongoing challenge is how do we support one another and do it in a way that we're accountable to one another and that it's loving and understanding and without a lot of ego. And that's a challenge for me because we're human beings. We want to win. We want to be seen as the best. You know, sometimes we want to be first and the best at everything. And it's very difficult sometimes to put that to the side. And if you lead with that, then you are you need to have the understanding that you're leading your organization with that, that it becomes pervasive and that it, it will permeate the rest of your organization. And then don't be fooled. It will permeate the groups of folks that you're supposed to be working with, right? Um, and so I think those are just some of the challenges that I'm probably um, grappling with on a day-to-day -day basis. And probably the challenge of duality. You know, I'm here at Yale, but I still buy my food for my family with food stamps, right? I'm looked upon as a leader, but I'm still a, I'm still a low-income single mother. I've been at a welfare office on a conference call with a councilwoman, you know, <laughs> trying to handle my business so that, you know, I can provide a way for my children to eat. So um, that duality, the making the conscious, and that's something I grapple with on an extremely personal level, making the decision to do this work and to do it with integrity and to not be beholden to an organization or to a company that I truly don't believe in or that I feel aren't do isn't doing the work that I'd like to see happen in my community and sort of making the intentional deliberate decision to sort of be poor for a while. I mean, I deal with the fact that I have enough skills that should this not work out, there's tons of different alternatives for me. You know, maybe I get to call up Katie late and be like, you know, anybody at Yale is hiring, you know, <laughs> or, you know, or, you know, I get to work with a local community college or I have the ability to be an assistant director at some somebody else's or some other nonprofit organization. But I also understand that there are lots of people in my community who don't have that, who don't have that ability currently. That's not an option for them that they're, they're working at, you know, a low wage or a wage working job. And they don't necessarily have all of the accommodations that the world says you're supposed to have to, to have a different narrative, to have different choices for yourself. And so if they get fired from Dwayne Reed or from the movie theater or, you know, um, f from, you know, some other blue collar um, job that the only option is to go to something identical to that, right? And so this idea of uh, upward mobility for a lot of folks really is false. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at yale.edu slash sustainable food.